Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. More than 550 episodes. It's all free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, what's going on? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have Daniel Gumbiner here. I don't have him here right now, but he was here. We had a conversation. He drove here from Las Vegas, Nevada. He parked on my street. He came to my house. He knocked on the door. He said hello. He came in. We sat down. We had a conversation. His debut novel is called The Boat Builder. It was uh, nominated for the National Book Award. Debut novel, The Boat Builder, available now from McSweeney's. It has a beautiful McSweeney's cover. I'm looking at Daniel Gumbiner's website right now, and his author photo is stunning. It was taken by a photographer named Whitney Friedman who uh, I have to give a shout-out to. This is a beautiful author photo. What a handsome young man. What a terrific head of hair on Daniel Gumbiner. So uh, that conversation is coming up just seconds from now. I do have some questions, or I have one question from uh, Malice Walker. That's her handle. Or no, her handle on Twitter is at, at HumbleCore, but she calls herself Malice Walker. She says, uh, Brad, how do I fix my life? Well, to be honest, it's hard to say. And I wish that I had some kind of quick answer. I wish uh, malice that I could tell you in a matter of seconds exactly how to fix your life. But the reality is that I need more information. I don't have enough details about what your particular set of circumstances are. I do not have the parameters of your conundrum laid out before me in a manner that would allow me to properly address your situation. But I do feel like there is uh, 
a through line from one brand of human suffering to another. You gotta get quiet. I would seek out absolute silence somehow, some way. I know if you live in a city, it's hard to come by. Even if you don't, it's hard to come by these days. But I think if you want to fix your life, if things are really sideways, the first thing that you got to do is get absolutely silent. like, you know, at least 10 minutes as you try to uh, sort through the rubble of your existence. It's a good first step. I also think that divorcing yourself from any kind of attachment to outcome, if you can do that, is helpful. Easier said than done. Malice Walker. But uh, I've known Malice for a long time on Twitter. Feel like I know her. Never met her. It's that whole thing. So, I hope you're okay. Hang in there. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. You want a podcast? Let's do a podcast. This is my conversation with Daniel Gumbiner. His debut novel, nominated for the National Book Award, is called The Boat Builder. This is Daniel Gumbiner. I I was not really even paying attention to the announcements because I just didn't think it was possible that it, I was going to get on the long list. And then I woke up to all these texts and looked, found out that I was on the long list, called my parents because I was so excited. It was like 7 in the morning because obviously I'm on the West Coast and uh, they announced it at 10 on the East Coast. And uh, my dad picked up and he was really concerned actually because I, <laughs> I was calling him. Why are you calling me? Yeah, why are you calling me at 7 a.m.? Is every, Daniel, is everything okay? And I was like, Dad, I got on the long list for the National Book Awards. And he was like, the wait list? <laughs> <laughs> He was like, does that mean, are you going to get in I'm later? I'm never good enough. I'm never good enough. Am I, Dad? <laughs> well, congrats. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to see some recognition and, and just to know that, like, the book is resonating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, that's probably the coolest thing about it is to know that even just one person, one of the judges really connected with it and felt like it, it mattered to them. Yeah. I mean, and it's so, you, you know, you're going through this, you know, like you, the book leaves you and goes out into the world and everybody picks it, you know, whoever picks it up, picks it up and they have their experience with it. And I know this is like pure common sense. We should all know this, but like, there's still something sort of, uh, like amazing. And, and maybe at times a little jarring about how like people can have like such different experiences of this work, like different from each other, but also maybe different from the experience that you might've imagined or intended for your reader to have. Yeah. You yeah. know, and you're like, Oh wow. Like I didn't see that. Or I didn't expect people to react this way. Like, has that been how it, how it's gone for you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think that's, 
part of what's nice about uh, putting a book out into the world too is seeing what resonates with people, and it's um, it's surprising sometimes. Uh, and you know, uh, particularly to one thing that's been really interesting. This is my first book; I've never done this process before. But just kind of noticing too how much the way you frame the conversation um, uh, affects the way people cover the book too and talk about the book what do you mean um i mean the way so i think when you know when i was writing the book it was sort of this big uh uh varied thing in my mind and then there are certain things you have to do putting a book out into the world to sort of uh simplify the uh story or the uh structure to uh convey it in more condensed forms um, and so you make, you know, you make some concessions here and there in terms of describing, simplifying, uh, summarizing what, what the book is about, um, or what, uh, what the principal thrust of the book is. Um, and, and the way you do that is really what I've noticed is that it really strongly influences, um, how people receive it. Um, and then, you know, there is obviously variation and people pick up different things and, but especially with the way our media is right now where you know something gets tweeted and then it just gets yeah, copy and pasted and retweeted um i think that's a big part of why that happens too um but it was just interesting uh that was something i didn't expect putting the book out into the world or i i maybe thought about it but it became more apparent to me once the book was actually out yeah you do have to sort of come up with a, a kind of shorthand mm-hmm. for how to talk about the book with people and then mm-hmm. you do any kind of press tour or you know interviews or whatever and or just talking to people in your social life. Oh, you got yeah. a book out. What's it about? I mean, it's a natural question. Yeah. And then you have like sort of your routine. <laughs> yeah. And people, you know, the one question that I feel like I've gotten a lot is, uh, what made you want to write the book or why did you choose to write the book? And, uh, my friend, Tayari Jones, who actually was one of the first people to read the book had, had told me, she was like, you know, you're going to get that question a lot actually. And, uh, Obviously, the reason you wrote the book is much weirder and darker and more complicated and probably pretty mysterious to yourself. Uh, but it's helpful to just have a answer that you give for that because it is something that people will often ask and it will be hard if you're trying to answer it with uh, complete depth every time. So what's your answer? <laughs> My answer is uh, something along the lines of... Uh, has to do with uh, this boat building teacher that I had, Bob Dar, who um, is based in Sausalito. And uh, I took a class uh, with him. And uh, he was, he's this, he's this very interesting guy, master boat builder, um, also grew up uh, in between Tahiti and California. And when he was in California, he lived in an area close to my hometown um, in Northern California. And so during these classes, we would take these breaks and uh, around lunchtime, and he would sort of tell stories about uh, his life when he he was living in Northern California and and running this boat shop. And the the stories were just very captivating to me in particular because it felt like they captured the feel of the place where I was from in a way that I hadn't heard before. Which is? Which is Northern California, West Marin County. Okay. Um, and, uh, so I sort of started thinking, oh, this could be a, this could be a setting for a book. And that's really kind of where I departed, um, from, 
but and and that is true that is a true thing but it's also kind of a fragment of the real story of like why did i write a book which is more complicated and i don't necessarily uh have the full answer to yeah i mean it is weird what drives a person to do this it's such a long hard process and like you do have to kind of root around inside yourself uh so much even if you're working on fiction that feels like at least on the page far afield from your own life which this book obviously doesn't i didn't know you took a boat building class but i guess it makes sense that you would have yeah <laughs> yeah um but yeah i, I don't know there's got to be some there's just got to be a lot of layers to what it is that motivates a person to engage with this work uh i don't know if anybody ever really gets to the bottom of exactly why yeah but you've got the you've got whatever it is yeah yeah do you, do you think... feel like you got it out of your system or you think you're like a lifer i think i'm a lifer yeah. I think, um, I think I got this particular work out of my system. Um, but I think I, uh, am, you know, I'm now working on this new project and it really feels like I'm completely in the forest again, in terms of understanding what it means to me, um, or how I'm going to complete it or, um, realize it. Is there a metaphor in the boat builder and then the Alejandro character, uh, for like you, you know, as a debut, like you learning your own craft of yeah. writing. I mean, kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, is that, do you, yeah. do you see that layer to it? Some, some people have, some people have mentioned that sort or asked me questions about the, uh, relationship between boat building and writing often. But I think there's also the question of, um, yeah, your, your own, uh, uh, creative work there and, and sort of uh, embarking on a creative task for the first time. Uh, and in their relationship, there is, uh, this tension in the sense that, you know, Berg doesn't feel like he is ever going to come close to Alejandro. And that's kind of this, uh, disappointing fact. And he has to figure out how to understand that, how to kind of be his own thing and learn from this person. But, you know, obviously not necessarily become that person himself. And I think that's a process you go through as a writer too, where, you know, you maybe feel, you ad greatly admire Philip Roth, but you know, you can't be Philip Roth. Uh, so you have to figure out who you are and Philip Roth, if he's your favorite writer may help you get there. Um, but you know, you have to, uh, define, uh, your own direction. Yeah. So did this guy, Bob Dar, you said, yeah. Did he help teach you how to write? That's an interesting question. I think in some sense, yeah. I think he helped me. Um, the thing about boat building that I think is really uh, transferable to writing is the way in which it sort of uh, hones your attention. Um, and, you know, so much of what you do in boat building has to do with these kind of uh, fine movements and uh, the the extent to which you are paying attention to what you're doing, the better uh, your work will be. Uh, and so it's really a practice of training attention. And I mean, woodworking in general is kind of a, a lot about that. And I think uh, that is very applicable to writing, too. I think on the sentence level or just, um, you know, even on a larger scale, thinking about a character or thinking about a plot, um, oftentimes I think, you know, 
you think something is good or you want it to be better than it is. And so you keep going instead of actually really looking and paying attention to what's happening and figuring out what's working and what's not working. Um, and so, uh, that you can, that same faculty is active. I think when you're writing too. And like cultivating a certain patience. Yes. Yeah. You know, and slowing yourself down. And I feel like too, it's like the mastery of a, a, a lot of small details mm -hmm. and, um, being patient enough to like master each one. Yeah. And knowing that like, as it accrues, like if you do master those small details, then the end product hopefully floats. Yeah. If we're going to continue. Exactly. To yes. Yeah. <laughs> and not freaking out too. I think that's the thing that, you know, uh, it certainly happened to me when I was, uh, working, when I was first starting to write where I would come to a point where I wouldn't know what I was doing or it would seem like it was bad. And I'd be like, well, everything's terrible. I got to throw it out, you know, as opposed to sort of, having patience with yourself and waiting and seeing what develops, uh, which I think is, you know, something you also train yourself in, in boat building to kind of just, uh, continue to move forward, uh, not, uh, panic, uh, in a moment of, uh, you know, difficulty in yeah, the process. It's, it's like, it's amazing how a piece of writing can look totally different from day to day. Yeah. Like, you know, Tuesday, it's a flaming piece of shit. And yeah. on Thursday, you're like, I am a fucking genius. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a masterpiece, yeah. you know? And so you sort of have to like, and, and, uh, you know, and even, even though you kind of know that it's still hard yeah. to like sort of ride that yeah. ride, but you got to sort of train yourself to accept that that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. It's normal Yeah, to have it change. But then eventually you get to a fixed place. Like eventually you do build a boat. Eventually it does float, you know, yeah. and you see it up and you go on to the next boat or whatever. But it's mm -hmm. like, it's interesting about, it's interesting to think about getting to the point of, uh, completion where you feel like you've done it. You feel like you, you know, it's time to move on. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with awareness too. Just knowing like this, this is what feels true to me. And if you're not sort of, uh, if you're not alive to that, you, you won't notice it. And you won't be able to say it's finished. Uh, but, you know, if you're, uh, you know, when something feels right or when you've said something the way you meant to say it. Um, and so uh, that's also something that I think boat building or craft in general can be helpful for uh, bringing out in your own work. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. 
So, and you are from Northern California, like born and raised? Yes. West Marin County? So I grew up in uh, San Francisco until I was about 10, and then we moved to Marin. In the city? Yeah. Okay. Uh, So Bay Area? Bay Area. Yes. Now now I live in Las Vegas. And you went to, but you went to Berkeley too? Yes. Okay. Um, And what made, did you grow up on the water? Did, like, what made you get into boats? I didn't. I didn't. Um, You know, I grew up near the water, obviously. but, uh, you know, my family wasn't into boats. It wasn't like a inherited thing. Um, I was just sort of always interested in boats, um, from a kind of, uh, romantic perspective. I'd say mostly I thought they were beautiful. I liked the idea of being on the water. And so I, I had sort of like learned certain things about boats over the years. Um, and then eventually I started, uh, there was a while where I was freelancing and I, I kind of tricked my way into this uh crewing job on a sailboat where i kind of made it seem as though i knew more than i did and they hired me and then afterward they realized that i didn't know anything but they were just like oh we we like this guy he's pretty smart we'll just let him do it you know yeah <laughs> um and go, so, go play with this rope yeah <laughs> uh so that's how i i really started to learn a lot actually was through that job i was doing this part-time gig and there's a sort of fictionalized representation of that job in the uh in the novel and then what about opiates opiates i so i never been addicted to opiates um i have had multiple concussions so that uh berg in the story obviously suffers this uh head injury gets prescribed opiates and then becomes addicted to opiates um that first part of that story did happen to me um and i was prescribed opiates and i took them uh, but I was pretty cautious because I knew how potentially uh, dangerous they were. Uh, so I, I, I was never, uh, fortunately, I was never addicted. But it was sort, of, it did make me think or give me an understanding of how easy it would be to uh, get addicted to opiates because um, uh, they work, you know. Right. And if you're in, and and I did have chronic headaches. What? Did, how did you get your concussions? Uh, I was skiing and then I was playing basketball. Huh. Yeah. And they can have lingering effects. Like I have a buddy who got a concussion playing like hockey as like a 37 year old, a 38 year old, something like that. You know, it's like dad hockey. Yeah. But he got, you know, he got checked or something and bashed his head and five years later, he's still dealing with it. Yeah. No, I, I still have effects from my concussions. I still get headaches that the type of headaches that I never got before. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was sort of having that experience made me think about how easy it would be to uh, slip into addiction if you're dealing with chronic pain and want that chronic pain to go away. But we're all dealing with chronic pain. We are. We are. That's and, like the human plight. Yes. Um, cr- but if you get a prescription from your doctor because they say, uh, you know, this will help you, it's a more... Uh, you can descend into that more quickly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, I think that there is a real tendency in human beings and maybe like, especially in like, uh, consumer culture to want quick fixes. Yes. Want fixes for our problems that don't require much from us in terms of, uh, effort. Yeah. You know, so like, Oh, I'm getting older. Like shoot me up with Botox. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm obese. Like give me lap band or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to have to like actually, and you know, 
if people have Botox or lap band and you're listening, it's okay. I'm not denigrating those things totally. I'm just saying like as examples that, you know, they don't, you just go in and you get a procedure done yeah. or you pop a pill and the problem goes away. Mm-hmm. And I, I see the, I see the allure, but I guess I think I'm, I'm a little bit mistrustful, uh, in a general way of quick fixes to like big problems. Yeah. We're not, yeah, we're not good at dealing with discomfort as it is. We want to make it go away always. And that's just, I mean, like you said, that's not how the world works. Like you, most people are in and out of pain pretty frequently. Um, Physical or emotional. mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So uh, that's uh, part of why so many people are addicted to these drugs too, I think, is because, you know, the culture tells them you're you should feel good all the time uh you should be able to solve this and get what you want uh when you want it and uh this is a thing that will help you do that well and i think too you know we have uh, a misleading understanding or we are often like given a misleading understanding of how we should relate to our suffering um or maybe it's just like human instinct you want it to just go away you want to avoid, mm-hmm. but the way through is through, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You want to like take that opiate and just have it like it all just turn off. Yeah. You don't want to feel any of it when the truth is that if you actually want to transcend it, you have to go through it. Yeah. And I think that's counterintuitive. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, you, we, you want to run away from it. It's fear inducing. That's what your book is about. Yeah. It's a spiritual book. Yeah. Is that what you intended? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I don't know if that's what I intended, but at a certain point it became clear to me that that was a big component of the story. And it's like, it's often like I characterize like it's a quiet novel. Yes. You know it's gotten saying? that. Yes. That's a, it's yeah. a quiet novel. That is actually interestingly not one of the things that we framed it as going back to that earlier point about, you know, how you describe what it's going to be. Uh, but that has become something that a lot of people have, have uh, labeled it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I think it's like totally, I I guess it maybe never goes out of style to talk about that kind of stuff because as much as like we have, um, like a a specific or a certain kind of, uh, manifestation of that problem, that human problem in our present culture related to the way we consume media and, uh, pharmaceuticals, (laughs) the way we're medicating and avoiding and watching TV and looking at our phones, like, you know, all those things that we always talk about and read about. And we, you know, I think most of us know the score. The truth is that the desire to run away from our suffering is been with humans from like the dawn of man. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's not like this is a new development. We just found new, maybe, um, you know, new ways to, to do it. Maybe they're more unhealthy. Yeah. They're more prevalent. You know, there are more like escape hatches. It feels like now, mm-hmm. you know, where yeah. back in the day it was like, I'm in the woods. I've got my bow and arrow or yeah. You know, like, yeah. It's not like you have like a phone and a flat screen and, yeah. a, you know, radio and all right. these different ways, you know, podcasts, all these different ways to sort of like shut off the, the babble in your mind. Yeah. You know, so do you feel like we're improving as a species? Or do you think we're like spiraling down? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, in terms of how, I think we are, there are areas in which we are improving and areas in which we're going backwards. That was a very diplomatic answer, but, (laughs) uh, I think, um, in turn, I think there, there is some interesting stuff happening 
particularly in the West now and in terms of, you know, in the, the West has been very far behind in this, but in terms of thinking about the type of uh, stuff you were just bringing up, you know, pain and suffering and the difference between, you know, wanting some wanting pain to leave and versus accepting pain and going through it. Um, I do think that's some, that's kind of an evolving, uh, there, there's an evolving consciousness about that in America and in the West more broadly. Um, but I also think there are ways in which we are further isolating ourselves, um, and, uh, becoming, uh, more atomized and, uh, less, uh, interested in, um, you know, uh, what we share as, uh, uh, as common people. And, uh, you know, obviously it's an incredibly divided political moment. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I think that, you know, uh, uh, that, that has been a, uh, uh, something that's been developing for a little while and is a product in part of the technologies we've created and the, the sort of structures we've built for ourselves. Right. So I think that that can, when you look at that stuff, it can get pretty bleak pretty quickly. But I think there is also some, uh, there are some positive developments, uh, uh, as well at the same time. I mean, and maybe it's always been the case, you know, but it's, uh, I guess like when I think of, I mean, especially when I think of it in a political context or like a mediated context, it's like, what's the solution? Like lately I've been thinking to myself, like sort of like how you have to be willing to sacrifice a certain degree of privacy on the altar of national security. Like I, I sort of understand why, uh, intelligence agencies might have to like look through email in order to make sure that like the somebody with a bomb or something isn't going to come in through a port and nuke, you know what I'm saying? Like my, hopefully I'm not wrongheaded about that, but I can, I can understand how there has to be a compromise in certain instances. And I guess I'm, I'm thinking of like the media and the way it's siloed and I'm all, I'm like kind of in my mind, I'm like, I'm a free speech person. I really believe in, you know, uh, the right of somebody with whom I vehemently disagree to say what they want. Like that's kind of sacred to me and vice versa. You know, that's mm -hmm. part of a, I think a healthy society. And yet, like, I think they're, I'm starting to think like, wow, we have to regulate the media a little bit because mm -hmm. you have like a Fox news that is actively pumping out propaganda and misinformation in large quantities, that's like doing a great under the guise of like a news organization, like yeah. a proper news organization, and it's nefarious, yeah, and it's super toxic and damaging to uh, a democratic society. But then I think about like, well, if all of a sudden you know in the legislature it was like we are going to have rules for the media, there would immediately be screams of like this is government overreach and can, you know what I'm saying? Yes. So yeah. I'm like that conversation though, especially in a cyber world and a phone world and a you know, the world we live in, that's a conversation we're going to have to have. Like how much of freedom of speech and expression are we going to be willing to sacrifice on the altar of like having like some responsibility in our news media? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, are, and I think the key is just having the conversation. I think, you know, in lar we're starting to have that conversation more, but we haven't had it really. And, you know, in many cases we found out about stuff only through the back door, you know, with Snowden or, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, the 
police were uh, tracking cell phones and uh, way before they told us what they were doing, you know, with like Stingray and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, it came out uh, and they were like, oh, yes, we have been doing that. And, uh, you know, they're to your point, it, you know, sometimes you want the police to be able to track your cell phone, uh, say, or someone's cell phone, you know, say they are trying to find someone who's committed a rape, you know, you then you want them to have that technology, it makes sense. Um, and you would hope they would use it. Uh, but you know, the, the flip side of that is abuse, or... abuse. And so yeah, you the, the, the more powerful the technologies come, the more, the more um, trust you end up having to put in uh, you know, the people who are using them in a lot of ways. And so the, I think part of the conversation is about figuring out how we can, uh, create oversight in ways that actually does, uh, regulate and, and at the same time, uh, creating a sort of scenario of consent where people know how they're being watched and, um, in what ways they're being watched. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like the opportunities for abuse of power are huge. Um, but I got to believe as human beings, we can figure out some, some kind of compromise, um, cause it just feels out of control and it feels like people just like you can create your own reality to a degree that is a, maybe unprecedented, Yeah, you know, and yeah. definitely seems unhealthy and is, and is a source of disconnection too, right. I think is the worst part of it is, you know, we don't have to come together collectively as a people and share or we we are not coming together anymore and agreeing upon shared principles or a shared set of reality yeah um which is uh just makes it impossible for dialogue yeah it's like post-truth world yeah you know that's not a world i want to live in really yeah i mean i know that like like what's a fact but there are facts right yeah there's such a thing as a fact yeah i mean it's an <laughs> interesting believe- thing of sort of like the whole you know there was that whole the whole postmodern movement was kind of about deconstructing in, in writing, at least, you know, was about deconstructing what is a fact and, you know, how do we, you know, these epistemological questions and all that stuff. And now it's kind of, even though that was like a very far left movement, uh, now it's kind of coming from the right in this different way. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to see how that's been. It's interesting to look back at some of those writers, which I haven't read since college, but, you know, and think about, uh, you know, those types of arguments in 2018 where they start to feel very different. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it feels like too, like your novel could be read as like a reaction against all this. Hmm. I mean, maybe that's what do you mean? Say more. I'm curious. Well, I'm just thinking like of, uh, a character who is in pain and who is medicating that pain and trying to, uh, anesthetize himself against not only the pain, like the physical pain of like, uh, head injury, and the, the associated headaches or whatever, but also just like, you know, the, the pain of being a man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then also like, in, you know, finding solace in this kind of like solid working with your hands, doing something that has like a beautiful, like physical end product. You know, you make a boat, mm-hmm. you can take that boat on the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you can drive the boat on the ocean. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like there's something like maybe sort of uh, deeply gratifying and spiritually nourishing about that kind of work, which cuts against the uh, technologized, like quick to the vein, immediate gratification world of so many different economies out there. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's something antiquated, there's something antiquated and slow food about 
boat building or a craft like that. And there's something slow food about literature. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so maybe like you were working against that on some level as you were like considering, um, Berg and you're considering your book and the world of it. And as you were taking this boat building class, like, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. is that maybe what drew you to it? Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's, uh, that's an accurate, uh, assessment. It's like this world is fucking crazy. Let me just go out on a, on the ocean on a boat. Yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, especially now, like I think about people who are expatriated and who just don't have to maybe like, uh, deal with the, the immediate static of the American news cycle. I guess, unless you seek it out, you can get it from anywhere in the world now, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I can look upon that with some envy. Like, what's it like to be expatriated right now while this country is at such a crisis moment yeah. in its history, but to be able to remove from it and to maybe be living in a place like say New Zealand, yeah, where there's like, by comparison, a very high level of sanity you know? Yeah. And like democratic, like cohesion to their society. And, um, you know, that must be nice or maybe, yeah. or maybe it brings it into even higher relief or something. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's, you know, there's the speed of the news cycle now is incredible. And it's often very hard to tell what is important and what isn't important. Cause there's so many, it feels like there's so many sort of just flares that are thrown up that seem like they're, very important, but then are, you know, just kind of, uh, sensational garbage. And then there are things where, oh, kids are actually being detained at the border. And this is a real thing that's happening. And so there's this complex, uh, there's the sensory overload with the, with the, uh, our political moment right now, where you're kind of, it's very difficult to figure out what you need to pay attention to, what's important, what you need to fight against, um, and so I think boat building is kind of like a grounding thing in a way, which yeah. sor sort of ties into what you're saying. Like it is, a, it forces you to come into your body, to come into the moment where you are and to just pay attention to what you're doing, uh, which is something that can be really hard to do right now. Yeah. It's kind of Buddhist. Yes. Yeah. It's very Bay area. I mean, like yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like San Francisco Zen center. You yeah. Know? Uh, do you have any of that in your like, uh, life? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm I meditate um uh but I'm I don't consider myself Buddhist but um like non-denominational meditator. Yeah, yeah. What does I, it look like? You doing it every day? Yeah, I do it every day in the morning. How long? Um I usually do it for about 10 to 15 minutes. Okay. Um but yeah, I found that, you know, meditation was really helpful for me. I started meditating, I would say around the time I was writing this book. Um and it was helpful for me in terms of dealing with, um, uh, my own pain with, uh, the headaches that I was having. Um, and it was also helpful for my writing, I think, um, just in the sense that it made me more aware of things and made me pay attention. And uh, I think, you know, the extent to which writing is interesting is often the extent to which the writer is observing something in a new way. Um, and so I think meditation can be really helpful for that because it's, um, you know, forces you to sit and, um, actually look at things, watch the, new. watch the craziness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> without, without your idea of how you think it 
is you know yeah are you good at it like do you feel like i mean because any, is anybody good no at this? i don't think anyone's a good <laughs> meditator um if you are you're probably not meditating well i mean if you're, if you're thinking i'm a great meditator right now you're probably not doing well you never have like the white <laughs> have you ever had like the white flash where you're like wow it's all one no it's not no it's never been like that for me i think you know uh it's really it's a pretty simple thing in a lot of ways it's just you know it, it's both simple and the hardest thing in the world which is just paying attention uh, non-judgmentally in the present moment and not doing, um, which we're so used to doing, uh, that it's incredibly hard to, uh, not let your mind sort of carry you off on some thought stream and start planning your day or, uh, you know, thinking about something that's happened to you in the past. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, it's, it's radical in some ways. Um, or I, I think it's radical to sort of sit down it and not do anything. Uh, I was going to say it's like a, it's a strangely like a radical act. Yeah. Especially yeah. In, in our culture now where everyone's like kind of moving at hyperspeed and like constant, it's like constant stimulation. Yeah. And I feel that when I do it, I feel like this is a radical departure from my normal operating system and then you know i try and bring that into the day um because obviously it's not like you want to just silo your meditative work and that practice um and then go about the rest of your day completely mindlessly um but uh it is hard to transfer and when i every time i sit down i do feel that sort of like um uh, i feel a departure uh in the sense that it i'm starting to do something that's very uh that feels in conflict with how uh i need to be in the world at other times and it's hard yeah you talk about like because i i meditate too and it's like the morning meditation is easier meditating later in the day once you get you've gotten all ramped up yeah it's like well you can like really feel like a internal resistance or at least yeah. i can yeah to like sitting still getting on the cushion uh there's like this this inner feeling of like you know like this kind of like uh I don't know. I mean, not like a force of some kind pushing on, pushing on me, but, uh, it's kind of a similar thing when I think with writing too. that feeling of like, am I going to sit down and write, you know, like, and, and sometimes that resistance is there and it's just an overwhelming resistance and other times. And it's, it's very sort of, uh, you know, amorphous. It's not really clear why you're so resistant to sitting down at that moment. Well, um, and, and carrying whatever it is, like whatever stillness you're able to materialize when you're on the cushion, you know, whatever quiet, you know, and, and just like deeper awareness that you, like level of deep aware, deeper awareness that you're able to achieve while sitting, you know, at least theoretically, you should be able to carry this forward into your life. That's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but what I notice is that like, cause you can do walking meditation, you can pay attention to your footsteps, you can cook you can boat build you can write you know yeah. like with a higher you know as long as you're kind of like watching your breathing or at least like having like uh, paying more attention mm-hmm. but what i notice is that like even with the best intentions especially if i get off into a work day or i'm dealing with my family or whatever you fall back into the trance yeah like one of the lines that i always go back to is that forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness mm. it's like this constant like back and forth between remembering and forgetting yeah and so like in the morning, like, I think that's why it's a necessity even for people who are like really accomplished in the practice to keep practicing. Yeah. It's not like you reach some finish line and you go, I got it. Yeah. You know, like you keep going because I think it's just human nature to forget. And yeah. You sort of need to, 
remind yourself or like generate that energy Mm -hmm. while sitting down yeah and like just keeping still even when you don't necessarily want to yeah and you know for for that is the case for a good reason like our minds are helpful and and sort of thinking is very helpful and there's a reason we have it um it just so happens that right now we've created an environment where we are thinking all of the time and we are distracted all of the time um and so our work is more getting back to, um, you know, a, a, an experience of presence on occasion, stringing together even like a few moments of presence. Um, well, yeah. And it's like, uh, there's an evolutionary biology component to all of this. Exactly. Like I think people can get, like, I, I think I can get frustrated with myself for not like being better at it. You know, you want to be good at it. Yeah. It's like part of the problem too. Yeah. You want to be good at this. Yeah. You know? And it's like, yeah, just, you're supposed to just kind of accept what's there. Yeah. Watch it and like, let it be as it is. Uh, but I sometimes try to like soften that impulse by being like, you know what? Like we're sort of hardwired. Like it's a survival mechanism. That's yeah. Been, like, like wired into our species going back millennia. Yeah. And you know, I think that part of the human conundrum is that, uh, God, it's like hard to like get it right in words, but I think that we glimpse something in meditation about the way that life is supposed to be and the way that we're spo- like supposed to be in the world. Yeah. Um, but just our net, the way that we are built as a physical being is sort of stacking the deck against us a little bit yeah a little bit and it's like it's like trying to like work against that yeah you know what i'm saying yeah i think well i think part of it is that we really identify our thoughts as ourselves almost during the on most days if we're not meditating and um you know i think meditation teaches you to kind of create a uh a fuller picture of that dynamic um, and, and so, you know, when you're saying like, you know, I want to be good at meditating in your head, you know, that's a, that's a thought and like that's, and your brain makes thoughts and that's what it does. And it's there to serve an evolutionary purpose and it's very helpful. And like, obviously none of us want to get lobotomized. Like that's not what Speak meditation yourself, is, <laughs> is advocating for. It's not like we're trying to, you're not, you're not trying to kill your mind. Um, you're just trying to see it as what it is, um, as opposed to having it control your whole being um in this way that uh kind of ultimately blinds you to the the more uh the complexity of your actual experience and your your uh your fuller embodied experience yeah and there's like something when you're meditating that you like there's some awareness of like this thing behind the thinker or whatever. Yeah. You know, you're sort of watching your, your brain go crazy and it's like, it's like secreting thoughts. Yeah. Your awareness of seeing your thoughts. That was, that was a really, um, uh, incredible experience for me. The first time I, uh, sort of felt that in meditation or saw that or could kind of make that connection. Just that little bit of distance. Yeah. You know? And like, it's almost like you're like the way I always like physically, um, characterize it as like kind of like a moving back yeah like into myself almost yeah you know and you go oh like all right try to watch this but then then it catches you yeah and then like I, I get hooked and all of a sudden like i'm like oh my god i just spent the last seven minutes yeah 
like having an argument with yeah. you know myself or like playing back some you know episode from my past or whatever yeah, or totally. worrying about the you know and yeah you just see how relentless and crazy it is yeah the amazing <laughs> thing is like then in that moment you're actually back yeah you know yeah that's what that's what my meditation teacher always used to say is like you know you can you can look at that moment as being like man i really suck at meditation like here i am <laughs> drifting off again like an idiot or you can be like here i am back i just became awake again. And as soon as you catch yourself, yeah. you're awake again. Yeah. So who is your meditation teacher? Um, so I studied with this guy, Will Kabat-Zinn. Yeah. He's John Kabat-Zinn's son. Yeah. Yeah. So he used to, he, or he still does do a sit in Berkeley. No shit. Um, uh, but, uh, John, I live in Las Vegas now, so obviously I can't go to it anymore. Oh, well, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, his book, wherever you go, there you are was like yeah. the, literally my introduction to this stuff when I was like probably like 19 years old. 20 years old and i just like picked it up off the shelf like i think i liked the title i was like oh you know like very impressed in boulder you know yeah <laughs> uh like you know and i picked it up and read it and that was it you know yeah and i was like oh this makes sense yeah you know but uh so if you know well tell him like his dad his dad hooked me up he's hooked a lot of people up yes yeah he's uh, an amazing guy so it's interesting to think about like in like the you know from a bigger picture perspective like the melding of east with west and like the traveling of those kinds of practices and uh, spiritual traditions mm -hmm. and ideas like around the world and, and vice versa. You know what I'm saying? Like it feels like um, a natural and probably necessary thing. And like, especially you try to imagine like how our species is going to survive on this planet. Uh, yeah. And like what would need to happen for us to be more sane. It seems like there's going to have to be um, a radical shift in consciousness in the way we perceive of, uh, ourselves yeah. as beings and of reality. And like, I know that can start to sound like woo woo, yeah, yeah. but it feels like we're getting close to that. I mean, with climate change and with nuclear weapons and with all the craziness that we're seeing manifested in American politics right now, vis-a-vis -vis the media and social media, something's got to give. Yeah. I think that is a, uh, that's sort of one of the best possible outcomes would be a, a significant shift in consciousness that, um, allowed us to, uh, see ourselves as, uh, more codependent than, uh, both with ourselves and with the earth. Um, but, uh, it certainly doesn't seem imminent. It makes me, you know, it worries me is that I don't think people tend to make radical shifts along these lines unless they've uh, suffered like a horrible grief. Yeah. Like that's usually the impetus in a person's life is like deep, a deep wound. Yeah. And it's usually like a, a loss of yes. some kind, whether it's like somebody you deeply love, like breaks your heart and leaves you. Yeah. <laughs> or somebody dies. Yeah. And you're wounded. And so I think like from a macro level about our species and how, um, how sick we are. Yeah. We're not well. Yeah. Like, co you know, collectively. And it's like, Oh God, like I hope something horrible doesn't have to happen in order for like people in mass to go, well, whatever we were doing, it wasn't working. It's like yeah. you need this like really huge moment of humility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what could possibly catalyze it. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I haven't thought about it in those terms, but I think that is, um, yeah, that's a, a really good, and it actually makes me think of the book a little bit in the sense that, you know, like Berg as a person is coming to this, uh, he, he finally comes to the table because he is suffering so much 
as well. Sure. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a really common experience is like you only, you only really start to, uh, you only really are willing to turn over your life entirely when there's, uh, uh, nothing else you can do, you know? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. So along these same lines, you know, like if we're talking about, uh, human suffering and I don't know the world we live in now and how to, how to like deal with it all. Um, I think about the conflict that we have, uh, the sense of conflict we have between opposing political parties or ideologies or nation states, or even like on a micro level between individuals for whatever reason. And I think about like social justice and all the different social justice movements out there, uh, that they're, you know, that are in existence, um, that are awesome, but there's so much, um, hurt in human beings, so much anger and, um, pain that like needs to be processed somehow. It's like what to do with it all. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. such a, there's such a high volume in people and you can sort of like feel it, you know, in, in the culture, whether you're reading it on your phone or you're experiencing it in the real world, because people are like, I don't know, there's a homeless person lying on the ground or there are people protesting or whatever it is, you know, you just have this like constant, or at least I do this sense of like all this pain. Mm. And there's a story that I've heard, um, either on a podcast or reading something about this woman who was abused as a child and like, you know, obviously traumatized her for years and years and years. Like it was a pain that she carried around with her and she was so angry, you know, mm. it was like one of the principal manifestations of it, especially over time. And I, I hope I get this story right, but she wound up at some event or conference where the Dalai Lama was. And I think she was like suffering so badly that like she wrote him a note and was like, I want to talk to you. She was like a law student, like maybe in Berkeley. And she was like, I, you know, I want to talk to you. I've become, I've gone to law school. I'm going to prosecute abusers and all this stuff and, uh, make my life about this. But like, I'm struggling with my own experiences of abuse. And he like agreed to meet with her. Like she was not like a political dignity. You know, she wasn't like a yeah. high level person, but he was yeah. like, yeah, I'll come meet with you. And I think the, the, uh, the short version of it is that he met with her and he was like, he listened to what she said. She kind of poured her heart out to him. And then he's like, can I ask you a question? He's like, have you had enough suffering? Yeah. And she was like, yeah, like I want to be done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, have you had enough? And he's like, okay. He's like, uh, then you have to work with perpetrators. Like don't work with victims. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to go like in your legal, in your legal work and like work with perpetrators. And he's like, only if you do that, will you be able to transcend your suffering? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, you know? And so it's like, there's this, and I, you know, there's a real story and I hope I didn't botch it, but it's sort of that. Yeah. And I found it really instructive as I think about like antidotes to all of these different like conflicts, you know, conflict zones or whatever mm -hmm. that we have in the world. Um, there has to be the way through is through. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like you can't just be angry and have that anger animate you and constantly being like, like seeking vengeance. Yeah. And also find peace. Yeah. And like, I think that's hard for me, me and people generally to like reconcile sometimes. Like you sort of want to like 
settle the score yeah and like win mm-hmm. you know and like it's complicated because like i think there's there is such a thing as righteous anger and there is a it's natural to be angry when you've been abused mm-hmm. and, you know but like there is like i feel deep wisdom in that what he said where he's like okay like have you had enough yeah <laughs> and then like this is what you've got to do yeah. Like, you know, or is that completely like pie in the sky? Woo woo. Am I just like completely naive? No, I think, I think that is a, I think that is a bigger, um, I think it's, it's challenging because, uh, I think they're, they're part of a, a, a process that they're connected, you know, being angry is, I don't think you can just, uh, Go if you are angry, you're angry Yeah, and you have to be angry. And I think it doesn't help you to be like, I am I now forgive you, even though I'm angry. Because then, then you are suffering. Because yeah. then you're denying the reality of what's happening to you. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a balance between. I th- but I, along those lines, like you know, maybe going into the darkness is going into your anger and being uh, honest with yourself about the fact that you're angry and letting yourself be angry. Um, and then you probably will move through the anger, as with all things. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, when you're in the sort of when you're in the midst of an emotion or an experience, it feels like it is the whole thing, but it's always just a weather pattern that's eventually going to pass. And it's worth um, noting too that, like, I think he was giving this advice, like she was like years and years and years past the experience of abuse. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily like the kind of advice he would give to somebody who like it was like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. But it's like if you're dealing with like lingering trauma or something, at some point you've got to like. It's like you got to face Vader, you yeah. Know, to use like popular mythology. Like, well, at that point, it's probably become this big story in your head about what you're doing and who you are, and it's probably pretty dissociated from the actual experience, uh, you know, that you had. Um, and you know, you're off on this path of whatever it is, prosecuting. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it can be helpful to be like, is this actually the path you want to be on? Like, yeah. do you? Uh, is this how you want to solve this or are you in a different place now? Well, and I always go back to my head in my head to like, uh, like another Buddhist dude who, uh, tends to be like really smart, uh, in my, you know, for me anyway, like tends to resonate with me. And it's like Thich Nhat Hanh talking about how like you can't effectively advocate for peace unless you are peaceful, which is like totally common sense. I mean, he's not the only person to have said this, but yeah. you know, like I get super animated talking about politics. You know, you can just feel it. You know, yeah. it's like that heat inside you get, it's natural to get pissed off. It's like, like road rage. Yeah. And yeah. you're just like, fuck this. And yeah. I do it. I, you know what? I did it yesterday. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm not presenting this as like, uh, like, a uh, as a way of illustrating how I've like got this nailed down. It's just yeah. like, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, but feels like probably true and necessary that like, you've got to find a way if you want to be like effective in a deep way, to like somehow get quiet and like peaceful and to like really embody that. Yeah. If you want whatever you're advocating for to be successful and to like in a lasting way. Yeah. Like you might win a battle, but you won't win the war. You know, if you're just like lashing out and pissed off and like animated by rage. Yeah. You know? And I think that's most evident when you're actually engaging with a person, when you're actually meeting and talking with someone who disagrees with you. Um, and you have to be in their presence and have a conversation with them about it. And that's part of what's so 
toxic a lot of the time about Twitter is that people can say things without having to actually see how they affect other people. And so there's this lack of accountability um, in terms of, uh, you know, what we say and how we say it. And uh, it and then it gets amplified uh, and sort of uh, perpetuates this anger and hurt that goes out into the world. Um, whereas if, you know, if you and I were disagreeing, uh, we would just in, go about it probably a very different way um, yeah. than we would if we were, you know, uh, talking to some person on Twitter who we didn't even know if they were going to read what we said or consider what we said. Um, well, people feel at liberty to like speak their truth. Yeah. And there's sort of like a competition almost to see who can like quip the best or um, like, like deliver the best takedown or whatever it is. Uh, again, I say this is somebody who like participates in it sometimes. Yeah. And I read something, I think somebody tweeted about it. It was like maybe a thread but uh, it hit me when I read it where it was like, I think, you know, one of the degenerative aspects of Twitter and social media in particular is that it externalizes all these things that, you know, in the past had been mostly unsaid. Yeah. Even among, you know, even and especially among people who might disagree um, quite a bit uh, in terms of political perspective. And now because all this stuff is externalized, it like sort of... Uh, like it nurtures mistrust. Yeah. Like you never, you know, you're like, oh, I know what these people are actually all about. Or, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. It's like, it's all there at the surface. Like all this, uh, all this uh, muck has sort of like risen up or yeah. whatever. And I, I mean, I don't think it's good not to say those things. I, I guess I sh should clarify that. Like I don't, I don't think it's right for people to think a thing and then just not say it Um and that that model was effective. But I do think there is kind of a fundamental flaw in the Twitter model in the sense that we say things, but we don't have to be accountable to saying them. Yeah. I think we should say them, but we should also say them to human beings. And, and if, you, if you're saying them to human beings, you might express them, but maybe not quite as like harshly. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you might, like you might uh, speak more mindfully mm -hmm. because you don't want to hurt the person. Yeah. But when you don't see them and you have this like kind of sense of detachment... And then you also are in an echo chamber where like a lot of people are going to be agreeing with you yeah. and like, you know, giving you dopamine hits when they fave your tweet. Exactly. Yeah. You know? So I, that's what I think is the problem. But maybe like from an evolutionary perspective, like we need to go through this where like, it's like, okay, put your ugly cards on the table. Yeah. Let's exercise this demon somehow. Let's, yeah. Let's like go through the hard work of realizing that this is not ultimately going to be yeah. all that helpful. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, or that there's a better way. Um, but, you know, it does, it brings to mind, like, you can, you can, like, really hurt somebody with a sentence. Like, and you might not even know it. Yeah. Like, a word. Yeah. You can do great damage to a human being for years. Absolutely. And that's scary. And I think that uh, it's really hard. It goes back to just like paying attention and being like uh, cultivating a sense of awareness, but like awareness, not only of like what's happening in the present moment, but like how you choose your words. Yeah. Like how you communicate with people. Uh, like we need to sort of get back to that. Cause like, I think, uh, you, you lose, uh, any sense of civility when it's just kind of a free for all. Yeah. You know, and almost like a, a SmackDown competition Yeah, running both ways. And like the era of Trump, you know, it's like, it's like insult comedy, uh, in a bad way. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. like, that's kind of like the national discourse. Yes. 
It's a, and it's like hypertoxic. Yeah. No, I mean, I think if, you know, for good reasons, that is how things have developed. Uh, you know, I think, uh, that's what happens when you end up with a leader, like the leader we have, you know, we turn around and it's, you know, been a few years and this is what we're doing. And it's because from the top, we are reacting to, you know, the, uh, force of power in, in a way, in a way that feels commensurate with the way the force of power is behaving. Um, and it's just, it's, it's terrible. It sucks. It sucks to, you know, every once in a while I have that moment where I'm just like, this is, uh, just debilitatingly sad that we have gotten to this point and we are treating each other, uh, with, uh, such a deep lack of care or consideration. And it's, it's hard sometimes to, you know, I think we're all living in that and dealing with that every day, uh, whether or not it's necessary, whether or not we're necessarily, uh, it's rising to the level of consciousness, uh, in a complete way. Um, kind of like the way, you know, if you're dealing with any kind of trauma or grief, it's always there, it's always there, but maybe you're not engaging it fully in that moment. Yeah. Um, cause you can't, cause you can't, you'd be, you'd be totally, uh, you know, Paralyzed. non-functional. Yeah. Yeah. That's an idea. Uh, that's always interesting to me is that like, especially when I'm going through something like really hard, like a lot, like a grief or an illness, you know, illness of somebody close to me or an illness, you know, whatever it is, uh, noticing that you, you can't sustain but you can't sustain a mood. Yeah. <laughs> it's all temporary and fluctuate, you know, it all fluctuates. And so like sometimes it's at a fever pitch and you're just like, ah, oh, you know, you feel consumed by it. I'm like yeah. kind of crushed by it. But then like the truth is, is that like in the midst of all that, there are like hours or a couple hours or moments where like, you're just like enjoying like a Netflix doc. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like, you know, like as a human being, like as a, as a, as an animal, yeah. like you just can't sustain yeah. anything, you know? So, uh, I guess that's good. It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. Uh, how does it end? Like, do you, cause like they say the darkest hours right before the dawn. Like, yeah. I, like I think the hopeful part of me is like, well, maybe we're going through this and you know, it's going to exercise something very dark in our, um, collective experience and we're going to get to something better. Yeah. But I'm also like, or maybe cause like I thought we hit bottom with George W. Bush, like it shows you how little I knew. Uh, I thought that was the worst presidency yeah. I would ever see. And, you know, now he looks like, you know, uh, Abe Lincoln by comparison, right. which is like yeah. creepy and weird, you know? And so, and like disorienting to me, yeah. I, it makes me feel weird that like, we're almost lionizing like, him. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Hey, but- listen, just cause he wasn't as bad as th- this guy who's like a horrible criminal. Yeah. Uh, like a kind of like an overt, like, you know, it's like bad comedy or something, yeah. you know, or not, I don't know if comedy is the right word, but you know what I'm saying? Like yes. there, there's something, um, it's so obviously bad. Yeah. That, yeah. It's like a, it's like a cartoon almost, yeah. you know, in some way, but, uh, that's part of its appeal, I think. Yeah. And um, so I, I just, I guess I wonder like, is there going to be some kind of awakening that results from it? Or do we need to go even darker before people will wake up that's the fucking fear yeah i think we may need to go even darker i mean one interesting way of approaching the question is just sort of thinking about other what other um countries have been through uh you know that have been through similar things like nazi germany or you know maybe like the 
um, Argentine dictatorship or, you know, these kinds of countries that have been through these just like convulsing nationwide uh, traumas uh, and then, you know, and and have recovered. Um, Yeah, look at Germany today. Yeah. It's like pretty much like the... You know, it's like the Angela Merkel, you can make an argument as the leader of the free world in terms of like being in command of like the most powerful economy, like in the, in the food chain of like a, of like a thriving Western democracy, but like also not without its problems. Like there has been like in many of the same ways that that it's occurred in other um, Western democracies in Europe and elsewhere, kind of a revival of this like anti-immigrant, hard right, nationalist thing that sort of uh, animated uh, or did animate the nazis yeah so it's like i'm i'm now circling back to like that like forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness like even if you've gone through a trauma like you like we have to keep reminding ourselves like as people and as generations yes you know there's got to be this constant process of renewal because you see how slippery it is you can go right back into the same old dark cycle yeah so there has to be, it makes me feel like there's a real validity to this notion of an actual practice like meditation or boat building. Yeah. Like something you do versus something you believe. Yeah. Like you've got to have like a, a commitment to not forgetting that's grounded in action. Yeah. As opposed to just like, I won't forget. Yeah. Cause you will, you will, <laughs> you know, you'll slip. Like we, we sort of need this as a, as an animal, as a, you know? Yeah, Totally. So I'm glad you wrote this book. Thank you. Glad you learned how to build boats. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations on uh, the nomination for the National Book Award. Appreciate like, it. It's, it's a great success for a debut. What's the new book about? Do we, like you said, you're in the woods. I don't know if that it was like a metaphor or if that was like for real. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of a series of collected uh, narrative stories uh, that are organized around one bigger story. And it's all uh, set in... Uh, Las Vegas. Oh, and so you're not in yeah. the woods. You're in Vegas. Yeah. Like in different... the woods of the story, I meant. Like, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I meant. Like, it wasn't like you're not, like, it's not set in a forest. No. It's set no. In a, like, Although I'd love to set a book in a forest. That would sounds... be nice. Yeah. Maybe someday. Yes. You know, once, like, the the seas have risen, like, 15 feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in the forest hiding somewhere yeah. inland. But uh, it's great to meet you. Thanks for making the, the trip in. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been great. To Los Angeles. And I wish you well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ryan. All right, that's Daniel Gumbiner. His debut novel, The Boat Builder, is available now from McSweeney's. Nominated for the National Book Award, you can find Daniel Gumbiner on the internet at danielgumbiner.com, where you can spend hours, if you'd like, just staring at his author photo. I don't know. I don't even know what it is. It's like so like lifelike. I feel like he might start talking to me or something. It's beautifully lit. jealous of his hair i don't know what to say you have to check it out danielgumbiner.com you can also find him on twitter his handle over there is at dgumbiner thanks to kill rock stars and the band stereo total as always for the theme song music thank you to tiger in my tank for the interstitial music if you would like to support this program if you like it you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you want to write me a letter, ask me a question, tell me a story, offer your thoughts on the show, the address is letters at other PPL pod. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app, the, uh, the uh, Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get it. You can have it right there on your phone. It's incredible. 
Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. If you're out there and you're in an airport, you're stranded, your flight's delayed, you're agitated, you're with your family, the pressure's on, you're feeling suffocated, put your earbuds in. I hope this podcast helps you. If you're at, uh, if you're at your in-law's house, I hope this keeps you company. If you're all by yourself, if you're uh, fetal and uh, weeping, I don't know what, like whatever you happen to be doing. I hope this podcast finds you and uh, makes things a bit more enjoyable. Happy Thanksgiving! Don't eat too much. I don't like this whole thing where it's like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make myself ill by eating too much. It's, there's no point in that. Grow up. <laughs>